When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, the last few days have given a sobering reality check to anyone imagining that Ukraine was going to make any immediate dramatic gains in its newly launched offensive. In the second week of operations, progress is slow, unspectacular, and is coming at a cost. The overall picture is of a slogging match. The Russians fighting reasonably efficiently from well-prepared defensives the Russians fighting reasonably efficiently from well-prepared defensive positions, as well as deciding to make use of their air superiority to inflict losses on the Ukrainian attackers. On the other hand, this is all really to be expected, isn't it? So Russian forces have had a long time to get ready, and despite the fact that they're performing perhaps better than expected, they're still suffering considerably in the process. Ukrainian attacks are chewing up men and equipment and knocking down some of the Russians' scarce and hard-to-replace Air assets, particularly, I'm thinking of the KA-52 Alligator attack helicopters. It's obviously still early days. Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malia reported on June the 19th that uh, Ukrainian operations have several tasks. They're not solely focused on liberating territory. And uh, the Ukrainian forces have yet to start the main phase of counteroffensive operations. But I think we're beginning to see a sort of pattern developing, aren't we here, Saul? Yeah, we are. I mean, just a quick note on the on the Malier comment. It's absolutely true that it's not just about grinding forward. And we'll talk about where they're doing that in a second. They, you know, we're just hearing news of another big ammunition dump that's been blown up, probably by storm shadow uh, missiles supplied by Britain. But of course, this is multi-layered, this sort of offensive. It's not just about the attack. The attack, nevertheless, is taking place on a relatively narrow front. And, and we're getting a bit of insight from our old friend, Phillips O'Brien, who's come up with quite a useful term to describe what is happening. He says, basically, the current action is all along what he calls the central front. And that's a swathe of land running east to west, roughly from Donetsk to just south of Zaporizhia. So a line of about 200 kilometers. The same assessment was made by another podcast stalwart, Colin Freeman, who was reporting from the front lines in his interview with us this week, which I would urge you to listen to. Now, the focus would seem to suggest that it's somewhere in this area that the Ukrainians are hoping to place the main thrust with the aim of driving through to the Sea of Azov and splitting the Russian forces in two, making the ones in the western half, i.e. the Kherson Oblast, particularly vulnerable. We've been putting out a lot of feelers this week to get a sense of what's really going on. As ever, very understandably, Ukraine is playing its cards very close to its chest. So you have to do a bit of digging to get some idea of the true picture. And what we've learnt in the last days is quite sobering and should definitely dampen 
expectations of a big breakthrough anytime soon. Our sources are telling us that Ukraine has not yet achieved the weight of armor and the huge firepower it needs to move from what is clearly still a preparatory phase to the main event. So what we're hearing is that although there is fierce fighting with many casualties on both sides along this front that uh, Phillips has identified, the Ukrainian military haven't launched their main thrusts and they're still essentially probing Russian lines before deciding where to strike. The fact seems to be that they're still some way off reaching the force levels necessary to launch the big one. Thousands of Ukrainian soldiers are still receiving training in, uh, in foreign countries and the Western main battle tanks have yet to be fully deployed. Of course, these are essential uh, to, the, to, the, to the main attack when it comes. Uh, so um, the Ukrainians, it appears, are still waiting for a, a fair number of them to arrive. Also, we've got to remember the Russians seem to have upped their game in recent months, particularly in a vital area. That's the area of electronic warfare. And now it seems being quite effective at disrupting Ukrainian communications, but also managing to deflect off target some of the most sophisticated missiles in the Ukrainian armory, like the US-manufactured Excalibur shells. Now, they're fired from these M777 howitzers. They've got a range of 25 to 35 miles, and they're amazingly accurate. They're guaranteed to land within a few meters of the target. That's thanks to their GPS guidance system. But it seems that the Russians are now capable of deflecting them away from the target, which is a worrying development. Uh, according to our source, the Ukrainians don't know whether that's because the Russians have developed uh, a more powerful um, countermeasures, electronic countermeasures, or they already had them and were holding them in reserve. And there's even been talk that a traitor or a spy has provided the Russians with details about the Excaliburs and other Western systems. It's all a bit concerning, isn't it? So what are your thoughts about that? It's very concerning, actually, because if we uh, think back to last year, Patrick, the big game changer was the introduction of the HIMARS and also the 777 howitzer, as you say. Uh, and it's not just the 777 that is apparently being affected by these electronic countermeasures. It's also HIMARS. So that ability to pinpoint accurately targets on the battlefield and in the rear of the battlefield is obviously being disrupted. And when you're moving forward in the way the Ukrainians are attempting to do at the moment, albeit in multiple locations, you are hoping to really knock out uh, whatever it is that can counterfire, particularly artillery in the rear. Uh, we talked about ammunition depots, but the one that I mentioned earlier at the top of the program that's just been knocked out was knocked out almost certainly by a storm shadow, which will not be affected by these electronic countermeasures. But HIMARS apparently is, and that is certainly concerning. But we're not uh, going to spread any alarm and despondency. Um, I've just been talking to another of our favourite collaborators on the show. That's uh, Asko Krushelnitsky, deeply knowledgeable about uh, events. He's currently in Kiev. And he says that nothing that's going on is really unexpected and there's no real feeling that things are going badly. He says the Bush telegraph's very effective in Ukraine and if there had been significant setbacks, the news would have spread by now. So the message, again, is really Ukraine is in for the long haul. Don't read too much into the daily ups and downs of the battlefield and uh, keep the faith. By the way, um, reporting from Ukraine, which we've referenced before here, this website uh, produced uh, in Ukraine by a Ukrainian, gives a good, if you, if you look it up, you'll see some good analysis. But also there's some footage that gives a good flavor of the current 
battle, which you can characterize as, as small actions, you know, aimed at capturing a village here, a village there, tactical high ground, nibbling away at the Russian positions. Uh, it's a pretty exhausting way of war fighting for both sides. And it's very much the case, I think, that it's not just skill, but uh, motivation and morale that will prove to be the decisive factor in this type of battle. Yes, um, that's pretty much how I see it too, Patrick. If you stand back a bit, there's much to encourage the Ukrainians. For one thing, the Russians are using their best units in the initial fighting, so they're getting steadily attrited. It's important to remember that although they have huge manpower reserves, the stock of well-trained troops is dwindling and will be very hard, if not impossible, to replace in the short to medium term. They are also burning through their air capabilities. As we said, they've been throwing their air assets, some fixed wing, but particularly their alligator attack helicopters, into the fray and losing some of them in the process, and they'll be hard to replace. So although they have a considerable advantage in the air at the moment, their dominance is finite and may be lost when, at long last, the West finally get their F-16 fast jets that Kiev has been pleading from the beginning into the theatre. Yeah, it seems to me the Russians uh, could have adopted a sort of forward policy, if you like, um, that is trying to blunt the Ukrainian attack in the opening phase, grinding them down before they reach the main defensive lines, which at the moment are some, I don't know, 10 to 15 kilometers back. And that would explain why they're using high quality troops and air assets at the outset rather than holding them back for the main event. And their calculation may be as much political, I would guess, as military and part of the overall strategy of slowing things down, drawing things out. This, of course, based on their belief that given the short attention span of Western governments and their electorates, the way the media's stoking expectations of a quick victory and all that, um, that puts the onus on Ukraine, doesn't it, to produce uh, quickish results if they want to maintain support. And if the Russians can hold them up for long enough, then you know their hope is that the fissures may begin to appear. It's also good for propaganda at home. They haven't had much good news to report, have they, uh, for a long, long time. And of course, underneath it all may be the fear that um, about the quality of the troops actually holding the main defensive line and the worry that they may fold quickly uh, once the Ukrainians are able to reach them. Yes, and there's been one... Uh tiny chink of light for Ukraine. Uh, and that's a report in Le Monde, uh, the French newspaper, that President Emmanuel Macron of France has altered his previous position on Ukraine's bid to join NATO. Uh, he said as recently as December 2022, as I'm sure some of the listeners will know, that such a move would be confrontational. And, and I quote, you can't imagine it with this kind of Russia. Well, as recently as 12th of June, he told the Defence Council meeting in Paris that France's support for Ukraine to join NATO would be a means of, as he put it, influencing the conflict and bringing Moscow and Kyiv to the negotiating table. It would, Macron believes, be a security guarantee in its own right. So I think we can expect to hear much more of this at the forthcoming NATO summit. Well, that's it for part one. Join us after the break to hear some really fascinating contributions and questions. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations of the Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Welcome back. Well, another bumper crop of listeners' comments and questions, and it must be said, fascinating contributions to our knowledge. This week, we've got more emails than ever before, and we're really sorry we can't answer them all as time simply doesn't allow it, but we're very grateful for your interest, so do keep them coming. Okay, we've got a uh, fascinating uh, comment here from Joe Innes. He really enjoys the podcast, and uh, he's talking about last week's podcast when we discussed how the Russian state is censoring and suppressing the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. And he thought we'd be interested in some work that his friend Rob Blackie has been doing to uh, use digital advertising to get past the censors and give Russians real news. They have a crowdfunding link, and that is Give Russians Real News About Ukraine Using Ads. So if you go to crowdfunder.co.uk, you should be able to see what Rob is getting up to, uh, and it's fascinating stuff. What he says is it's very hard for Putin to shut down online advertising. Uh, So Rob is intending to use digital ads to show Russian independent news about Ukraine. These ads will be shown to people in Russia and Russian-occupied Ukraine and will use modern digital advertising to show real news about what is happening in Ukraine from high-quality sources. Now, this, Rob hopes, will uh, give Russian people the opportunity to make up their own minds about what is going on. And when they see it, he's confident that Putin will be weakened. They build a team of digital campaign experts who can get around Russian government restrictions. And they've already run some test advertising, which shows people from news independent websites. Their first test was on Saturday and it got to over 2000 people in less than two hours. Their ads have already been seen 37,000 times and people have clicked on them to see the independent news over 1500 times. So it all sounds very encouraging. Uh, Obviously, they've got a fair bit to go. But if you're interested in backing that, Go to the crowdfunding site uh, and you can and you can add your cash to the money they've already raised. Yeah, so they're pushing back against the bots. We've had some more bot action this week. Uh, James has picked up some more Derek's. Now, this is fascinating, isn't it, why they've chosen this name, Derek, to um, hide behind. I've done a little bit of research. I mean, what, what immediately comes to mind to me when I think of Derek, I think of Derek and the Dominoes, the Eric Clapton band. I also am old enough to think of Derek and Clive. Do you remember Derek and Clive? Saw you a bit, probably a bit too young. It's Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. It's amazingly scurrilous sort of dialogues they had together. But Derek is kind of is almost extinct as a name in in Britain now. It's something like uh, the three hundred and seventh most popular name, which means there's about three Dereks in the UK, <laughs> and I think uh, similarly in America. So heaven knows where they they got that one from. 
Anyway, uh, that's um, just an aside. We've got a really uh, fascinating contribution here from someone who gave their name but asked that we withhold it uh, for reasons that will become obvious when I continue. And it's um, it's full of highly detailed and technical stuff about the Nord Stream attack, which continues to fascinate our listeners. Now, last time we mentioned Nord Stream 2, we suggested, or we didn't suggest, but we reported that people were, again, uh, suspecting that perhaps some Ukrainian independent outfit might have been involved. But our informant is very much of the opposite point of view, and he has, seems to have lots of, of fascinating detail, which reinforce his belief that it's basically, it's, it's got to be the Russians. So he points out there were lots of other incidents, mysterious attacks on cables before and after, starting way back in um, at the beginning of 2021, I think, with the cutting up and dragging away of more than four kilometers of undersea cabling, which weighed about 10 tons off the Norwegian Lofoten Islands. There's lots of other stuff, sabotage of communications cables in Germany and France. And in all but one case, there were strong suspicions of Russian involvement. He goes on to provide a lot of detail about the Nord Stream 2 explosion last September, which makes it pretty clear that the Russians were to blame. There were suspicious Russian ships in the area capable of launching mini-submarines. It all switched off their radar transmitters, which uh, is telling us something, isn't it? Uh, So our source concludes, the overall impression one gets from the above is that Russia is currently attacking the West through sabotage. Note that there is very little official comment or explanation from the affected countries, i.e. France, Germany, and indeed the UK. UK. We, we suffered some mysterious attacks as well. And also the reporting on all this, apart from Nord Stream 2, has gone cold. Now, here's the really interesting bit. He says the implication is, quotes, that this may be painfully close, these attacks, to an Article 5 breach, i.e. of the NATO commitment, and it is not in the West's interests to highlight this, i.e. this would be constituted as an attack on a NATO member, which would then uh, trigger a, a NATO military response. So he says this is the sort of game Russia loves, classic Cold War stuff that Putin harks back to, you know, the message being, we know that you know we've done it and there's nothing you can do. And Patrick, I mean, on top of that fascinating email, we've got another one from Harry from Norfolk, who himself provides a lot of compelling evidence, slightly different from the information you've just given. He says that firstly, Putin has a history of blowing up gas pipelines to create economic and political instability as a way of impressing on countries their dependence on Russian energy. He did this, Harry says, to Georgia in 2006, Turkmenistan in 2009. And in both cases, it was during a period of heightened tensions. And in both cases, the other side pointed the finger squarely at Moscow with the means and the motive. There are also a number of gas crises between Russia and Ukraine over the years. Uh, and by the way, he's been giving links to all the evidence that he's uh, he's producing to back all this up. He goes on to say, I would note that while Nord Stream 1 was rendered inoperable, one of the uncommissioned Nord Stream 2 pipelines remained operable and Putin offered to export gas through this a month after the blast. Germany being compelled to commission Nord Stream 2 to avoid an economic crisis would have been a disaster for Western unity and full respect, says Harry, to Germany for responding by accelerating their plan to end Russian gas exports. It was reported that 10 days before the explosion, Putin had told Europe, if you want gas, open Nord Stream 2. 
And thirdly, and this uh, supports the points you've just made, Patrick, he notes that the Russian Defence Ministry stated that Russian naval vessels with underwater capability, we've spoken about this before on the podcast, Phillips made the same point, were operating in the area above one of the explosions with its transponder off, with Danish Defence Command saying they had 112 photographs of the vessels circling the pipeline. Harry would humbly suggest that the sabotage is more likely to be conducted by this naval vessel than a group of unaffiliated activists. So I think we should leave it there, Patrick. But I hope we've put the issue of the Nord Stream pipeline explosion to bed with all of this. Yeah. Just to make it clear that, that we've been referencing both Nord Stream 1 and 2. They were both affected by it wasn't just one uh, explosion there were a series of explosions on the 26th of september 2022 where the picture's pretty clear both the a and b pipes of north stream one are inoperable and pipe a of north stream two is inoperable um so there we are it's a you know fascinating subject which obviously the listeners share our interest in david tristan ratte from canberra in australia makes some really interesting points about whether we've been a bit slow in the West uh, to respond to the challenges that that Russia is setting us. He says his concern is that uh, we, i.e. the West, are in danger of uh, losing warfighting escalation dominance. This is a term we've heard quite a lot of, isn't it? It's all from from our military experts. You know, the the lesson from the outset was that the Russian army was not well-prepared, well-led, or as well-armed as had been feared. Uh, David writes, at that point, NATO had escalation dominance. However, the Russians are learning and adapting. And his observation is that the longer the war goes on, combined with the slow drip feed of advanced weaponry to the Ukrainians from the West, uh, all this is actually going to favor the Russians. Uh, They seem to have worked out defenses, as we were talking earlier on, against HIMARS, etc. And um, you know, various experts are saying that the Russians are sort of upping their game, which is really kind of something that they historically they've shown themselves to be quite good at doing. So he's saying, have we in the West missed our opportunity to escalate and win with our advanced tactics and weaponry? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, David. And, you know, the footage we're seeing suggests that the infantry tactics have improved as well as, you know, countering the actual better weapon systems that the Ukrainians have. We're not seeing so many of the blunders that you often used to see uh, featured on, you know, from drone footage and everything earlier in the fighting on the Russian side. They seem to be withdrawing in good order, counterattacking, generally making life pretty difficult for Ukrainians. And uh, as I was saying, the, the pattern of history, at least if you look at the Second World War, is that the Russians do learn from their mistakes and they develop proper tactical responses and ultimately um, a war-winning strategy, as it turned out. I think those circumstances are very diff- different here. I mean, this is not an existential struggle for Russia, although, of course, it may be for Putin. Yes, and I think it's important, Patrick, too, not to overestimate uh, how much Russia is learning. I mean, they're doing pretty well in a defensive situation because they've got very effectively prepared defences. But are they going to be doing any any better when they're attacking? I mean, the recent fighting around Bakhmut, where they lost enormous numbers of men in you know in these mass attacks, uh, would suggest not necessarily. So I think you can overdo the argument, but I certainly agree with David's broader point, which is that we should have and should still be giving Ukraine everything it needs to win this war. 
Now, moving on, there's an interesting one from Brendan uh, in Sydney, Australia, and he notes that we've often said that US Republican support for Ukraine is more tenuous than democratic. Uh, That's clearly the case. But he's flagged up an interesting debate on the US involvement in Ukraine featuring prominent Republican congressman Dan Crenshaw. And I would urge everyone to listen to this because I listened to this. He's given me the, uh, the link and it's on a podcast hosted by Dan Crenshaw called Hold These Truths. So you can find that on, you know, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it because there's a debate between Dan and someone putting the opposite point of view, which is really we should be withholding support for Ukraine and, and staying out of this. And this goes all the way back, as we've discussed before on the podcast, to their long sort of tension between the isolationists on the one hand. This was very relevant at the beginning of the start of the Second World War. It's why Roosevelt took so long to get into the war. And those, of course, like Roosevelt and, and now Biden, who feel that, no, uh, America really does have to play a crucial role in stopping authoritarian states getting too powerful, Hitler in 19. 19- 39, of course, uh, and Putin today, because that ultimately will impact on America's strategic goals. And one of the most powerful arguments that Crenshaw makes in this debate is uh, is really exploding the myth that the uh, war was caused by NATO expansion. He he very much shows the opposite, which is that, in fact, it was Ukraine and NATO weakness or lack of standing up to Russia that brought all of this on. But listen to that if you get the chance, because it is good to hear a Republican congressman putting a very strong case for support for Ukraine. We've heard again from Amir Krupich, who is living in Ukraine, but very much of Yugoslavian, as he puts it, origin. He, he was amused by when I was talking about uh, mentioning a, a rude uh, name that uh, Yugoslavs used to give for somewhere really in the back of beyond, which politely translated means where wolves copulate. Anyway, he was uh, uh, sort of tickled here, but he's, he's talking about his, his background. He says uh, his father's family were from Osansky Novi, which I visited uh, during the Yugoslav Wars in 1992, an early stage of the war, when the great ethnic cleansing operations were going on in a dreadful scene as we snuck in there, a couple of us under the eyes of the of the Serbs, to, to see these heartrending scenes of convoys of, of peasants, really. I mean, some of them actually in horse-drawn, animal-drawn carts with their belongings piled up there. Uh, and they were all, in the matter of a couple of weeks, they were all driven out. And so this is the Bosniaks, of course, and the Croat inhabitants of, of the town. And so the, the place is now entirely Serb. So very much in keeping with what the Serbs, Russian allies, that let's not kid ourselves, the Serbs are pretty much on the side of Moscow in this thing, what the Russians have been trying to do in eastern Ukraine. Um, but the point that... Uh, Amir makes is that the, the saber rattling that we've been hearing from Putin actually is a pretty old trope. You know, he's been, he was doing this all the way back in 2014 over Crimea. So I suppose that's quite uh, reassuring. So he's basically re- referring back to what uh, Hamish de Bretton Gordon was saying in uh, the, the last big interview, but one when he was making very sort of, again, reassuring noises about the, the actual likelihood of, of Russians escalating to nukes. Okay, we've got another interesting one from Thomas Schulter-Hillen from Bonn, Germany. My grandfather was an officer in the Wehrmacht in the Second World War and for a while was also stationed in Ukraine and Crimea. Therefore, I see the German engagement of today, delivery of weapons, etc., as a chance to stand on the right side of history and on the side of the Ukrainian people. Since the start of the invasion, he's hired Ukrainian software developers from Kharkiv to help in his company. 
They remained up and running throughout the winter despite Russian bombing campaigns on their electricity, heating and internet. This is my contribution to supporting Ukraine. Now, he has a couple of questions. Um, I'm just going to do the first one. A lot of talk about during the current Ukrainian offensive about how they lack air power and how it is to the Russians' advantage to have fighter bombers, helicopters, etc. Before this offensive, however, it seemed that air power did not play a major role because both sides had strong defensive capabilities and neutralized the other side's air force. Why, how has this changed? Well, Patrick, you might have your own view on this because you are our resident air power expert, but I'll just offer you know one very obvious point, and that is that air power is easier to deploy when you're fighting on the defensive. So for Ukraine, uh, you know, they lost a few planes, but they were also very effective at bringing down Russian planes when the Russians were moving forward. And I think the same issue holds true today. As the Ukrainians are moving forward out of their positions, they're going across the battlefield. And that's the point at which you're really outstripping your anti-air assets. The Russians, on the other hand, will have those anti-air assets, including their helicopters held in reserve, and they can launch missiles from distance. So I think that's really the key to what's going on at the moment. And it's said, of course, as we've mentioned before, that the F-16s and other platforms would make a big difference because they can knock out some of these uh, helicopters in using air-to-air missiles. But Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that? I think you cover that very, very effectively, Saul. Uh, I just want to answer the second part of uh, Thomas's uh, question, or at least address it, which he's asking about a lot of the information we're getting appears on the Russian side of things appears uh, to come from uh, the Russian mill blockers. Now, this is a term we use a lot without actually explaining properly who they are. And indeed, it is a bit of a mystery. He's asking, how do they receive their information? Are they embedded in the, with the Russian forces? Or are they uh, just guys who've got personal connections to so Russian soldiers, perhaps ex servicemen themselves, who are effectively just being leaked information by their old mates. Well, I think it's probably a combination of the two. Some of the mill bloggers seem to suggest they're actually taking part in the fighting themselves. We've got a, an upcoming guest, uh, Alan Phillips, an old colleague of mine, great Russian expert, who's going to address this in, a, in the next big interview. So hopefully we'll be dig- digging into that there. So listen out for that one. But I just want to make the point, Thomas, that it's great that you see your contribution. Indeed, you know, Germany's stance as a way for the country to atone for its past sins in the area. But, you know, it's not a a completely sort of clear picture. Not all Germans appear to take that view. I'm thinking of the mounting popularity of the right wing alternative for Deutschland uh, party, whose poll numbers are surging at the moment. They're now on a par with the Chancellor Olaf Scholz's party, the SPD. Now, AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, has a reputation for being pro-Russian, also sometimes pro-Putin. When last September, a delegation of their MPs visited Russian-occupied Ukraine in what very much appeared to be a sort of supportive role. And the, the policies of the party are basically for, they would put it politely as saying, de-escalation and, and being anti-war, but it effectively means supporting Russia because they're calling for the scrapping of sanctions Etc. So it's uh, it's a bit of a mixed picture and um, a slightly alarming one. Okay, we've just got a message in from David Alexander, and it shines a little bit of light on the on the issue we were talking about, which is Russia's uh, ability with electronic warfare. And he writes, "I know a bit about EW electronic warfare, but I wouldn't claim to be an expert." The Russians have a good reputation uh, for EW and their ability to bend GPS for a long time. They do it regularly, having their own GLONASS system. 
The ability to bend GPS has meant that the Ukraine has had to get creative about the way they program their drones to get round the GPS jamming. Weapons, he says, such as HIMARS and Storm Shadow are designed with that capability as standard because they're military grade, but commercial drones are not. In fact, they're often geofenced. I know that Ukraine captured some EW kit early on, and I'm making the assumption that they and NATO experts have been through it in as much detail as possible to learn A, how it works, and B, how to defeat the capability. Both sides seem to be working hard to defeat drone use by the other side. They seem to have become expendable commodities. So nothing specific about the triple sevens in that message from David. He's really talking about the drone battle. But it's interesting that he points out that HIMARS, which has been reported to have been affected by Russian capability in EW, uh, is not, in fact, and it's designed to uh, to defeat anything against it. So that's an interesting extra consideration that sounds a little bit more encouraging for the Ukrainians. Yes, indeed. Um just going to read out one here from Jacob Vedel. Just, I'm just pleased to hear that we've got young people listening as, as well as adults. And he's saying, as a young lad whose strongest suit is communication, how can I use my strengths regarding researching and writing to do my best to learn about this war while feeling confident in what I've learned? Uh, I'm, over, I'm aware of the incredibly strong views being pushed by both sides, and it's clear to me both Ukraine and Russia desperately want all the support they can get. The struggle of trust has never been more highlighted for me. How can I produce articles that are both educational and impactful without getting swayed by the propaganda? Now, young Jacob or Jacob is a citizen of both Denmark and the USA, currently residing in Denmark. Well, this is the eternal problem, isn't it, uh, Saul? I'm sure you, you'd agree with me, of, of both the journalist and the, and the historian of, of sifting all this stuff, often which is diametrically opposed, and arriving at a conclusion which is sort of founded in truth. Now, this is a terribly difficult question. And it sounds to me that you've made a good start, Jacob, by, well, without blowing our own trouble with listening to, to our podcast. But I think the thing is really just spread your net as far as wide. You know, do engage with the other side, do see what they're saying. And I think you know, your own inner compass will tell you, uh, will be kind of flickering in the direction of, of where the truth is. Uh, it's something you you kind of get from experience, but it sounds to me like your basic instincts are correct. What do you reckon, Saul? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you know, you and I, Patrick, you know, from the early days, me as a historian, you as a journalist, and now a historian, you know, had to temper the tendency, frankly, to grab hold of a good story or something that sounds exciting. And, you know, and the conspiracy theory is a classic. I remember as a young boy thinking all those conspiracy theories about the death of JFK, uh, you know, were probably true because I wanted them to be true because it would be an amazing story, wouldn't it? Uh, the fact that some, you know, loner, random loner with a sympathy for communism was almost certainly responsible isn't as exciting. And I think that the, my, the point I've made before on the podcast, and I think it absolutely holds true, in most cases, is the simplest explanation is usually the right one. That doesn't mean it's the, it's always the case, but you know, just always ask yourself what is the most obvious explanation for for this scenario. And I think I feel, you know, certainly in my experience, Patrick, that's generally been the case. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. But uh, you know, truth has always been a slippery commodity as slippery as a bar of soap and it's getting more ever more uh, with all the kind of um, possibilities that the that the the internet uh, offers so yeah i think we're going to see uh, more and more conspiratorial thinking than less but uh, it looks like young uh, jacob is 
really serious about doing something about it. So well done you. Yeah. And on that subject, Patrick, it reminds me when we were trying to think of a name for the podcast. Um, I, I love that quote, you know, the first casualty of war is truth. Um, it, it's a bit long winded. And, and frankly, it was laughed out of court by our producers. But that's really the point where we're trying to say it is sometimes hard to see reality in among the gloom and all the all the propaganda you inevitably get in war from both sides for that matter. But we feel that, uh, you know, the information we're getting certainly <laughs> from the Russian mill bloggers uh, and from some of the official Ukrainian sources, is more trusted than anything we're getting out of the Russian MOD, for sure. Okay, this is this one with your name stamped all over it, Saul. This is from Hamish. And this is a technical point about, he says, I don't know how true this is, but I've read it in the great, that in the Great War, the Allies in Germany built very different trenches. Germany had captured land and was happy to dig deep, heavily fortified trenches and bunkers to keep it. Um, while the Allies had lost land, and to keep some sense of this is temporary, we will be moving forward soon, um, they, I think he's saying that they didn't uh, construct the trenches with the same amount of care. Do you see a similar situation in Ukraine? Well, I mean, just I, I sort of ask you, because I can't answer this one, is that the case? Were the, were the French, British, and later American trenches on the Western Front less well built than the German ones? They were. He's absolutely right. Uh, it's interesting the point he makes because I never really thought that hard about it. I mean, I, I, you know, I often put it down to, well, German engineering and, you know, they're always going to do things properly, aren't they? But it's really interesting the psychological factor that Hamish talks about. It holds absolutely true in Ukraine today as it did in the First World War, which is that if you think about the Western Front, it's really France trying to recover its territory. People often ask the question, why are the Allies doing all the attacking? Because they had to, just as Ukraine has to now. The de facto situation was that an initial German invasion, Russian invasion in Ukraine, was successful up to a point in the, in the sense that it captured a valuable bit of territory. In the case of France, uh, the double difficulty Patrick, of course, for the Allies was that the Germans had captured most of the industrial region of northeast France, and that and that absolutely had to be recovered. So it did mean that there was always a sense we're not going to be staying in these lines for long, and that almost certainly, as Hamish puts it or suggests, uh, was a factor behind the trenches not being dug as as deeply and as effectively. Uh, you know, the German Hindenburg line, uh, which was really the Neur plus Ultra, we're gonna we're gonna stop you here, was incredibly sophisticated and very deeply dug. It was eventually overwhelmed, but, you know, and we hope it's not going to take four years for the Ukrainians to do this with with the uh, Russian lines in Ukraine. But it's a very interesting point, Hamish. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and I completely agree with you. Uh, just a quick one here from uh, Charlie Serracold, who um, mentioned that uh, when we were talking last week, we were saying we were going off to see Adam Zamoyski. We had a very enjoyable dinner with Adam Zamoyski. For those who don't know him, he's, uh, you know, as his name would suggest, he's, he's a He's Polish or Polish origin, and he's the author of many, many books uh, across quite a wide range of European history, diplomatic history, but also very much a, a great historian of Poland. He's saying, why don't you invite him onto the podcast? He'd have a very, uh, really interesting perspective, and I love his books. He's thinking of Moscow, 1812. And that thought did strike me, Saul, as it probably did you when we were listening to, uh, to Adam last week, so we we'll definitely put him on the list. One more here, final one from Harry Haran uh, in India, and he's uh, asking, is there a monetized estimate of the cost so far of the war? How will Russia be made to pay for the losses caused by their unprovoked and ridiculous invasion? Well, this week, the UK is hosting a, a gathering of 60 nations here in London 
uh, to discuss just this. Of course, the Ukrainians are saying that reparations will have to be part of any peace negotiations, but I think it would be foolish to expect Russia to agree to compensate them for the enormous damage that they've done. So it'll probably afford the rest of the world to step in, at least initially, uh, never forgetting that the West is already doing a lot to keep the economy and the infrastructure going. Now, among the people at the conference was the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Denis Shmigal, and he's estimating that the bill will be a staggering $750 billion. And of course, it's going up by the day. Uh, and this puts the scale of the effort needed on a par with the American Marshall Plan to repilled Europe after the Second World War. So this is something, of course, we should never lose sight of. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. Do join us next Wednesday for another great guest on The Big Interview. And of course, Friday, when we'll be discussing all the news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.